because you're jumping back into the gut. All right. Hey, Coach. Welcome to the Basketball Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Oliver. I appreciate you joining us for this week's podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit basketballimmersion.com for more coaching resources and access to all the basketball podcasts. I hope you will give us a shout out on social media, on Twitter at Bball Immersion, or on Instagram at Basketball Immersion to help me continue to share the game. Enjoy the episode. Excited to welcome Mike Boynton here to share the game with us. Coach Boynton is the head coach at Oklahoma State, where he has built the program over his four seasons, leading to an outstanding past season where the Cowboys advanced to the finals of the Big 12 championship, earned a number four seed in the NCAA tournament, and ended the year ranked number 11 in the Associated Press Top 25, all first since 2005. Oklahoma State's first round win in the NCAA tournament was its first since 2009. In his four seasons at the Helm, Boynton has compiled a 72-58 record while leading the Cowboys to 17 wins over ranked opponents, including 10 victories over top 10 squads. Coach, welcome to the podcast. Uh, no problem. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's great to talk to you. Coming off an outstanding season, uh, new contract, all these things. But I went to the first page of your bio and uh, cool that the first line is, let's work. Can you talk about how you bring that slogan to life in your program. Yeah, it's interesting. First of all, I appreciate you, Chris, for, for just giving me this opportunity. I, uh, I'm a basketball junkie, so a lot of your content I pour over time and time again. If you get to my likes and my Twitter page, a lot of it is stuff that I want to reference again uh, at some point later on during the season or in the offseason, just things I want to study. So I appreciate the work you're doing, and I admire your passion for the game. But Let's work is a pretty cool saying, right? And it's probably one that many people can identify with in our industry as a whole. Uh, But for me, it goes well beyond just the game to just a way of life. And I've tried to personify that phrase in everything that I do. And I try to have, that's kind of the foundation of our program. You know, everybody talks about their core values and principles And for me, it just comes down to those two words. Uh, And I think people get caught up in the second word a lot, which is important. Um, But the true strongest part in my mind of it is is the first two words, right? It's a hyphenated two-word phrase, let us work, right? And it's about our team and our staff in our university, our administration, it's about our fans and our alums and everybody playing a part in this program becoming nationally relevant again. And so it can be it can be very micro in terms of the day to day practice, film study, weight room, recruiting calls. But it's also macro in the sense of big picture. How are we branding ourselves, what type of messaging is out there about the experience that our players are having, uh, what is the sentiment in our community about how our players comport themselves. It's about how our former players feel that they're still welcome when they return to campus. Uh, It's about the parents of our players knowing that their kids are cared for and loved and, and being developed. So it's about work, but it's just as much about let us do it together. And uh, I try to be an example for our guys and our staff of that every single day. Well, you are that. And that's very cool to hear that part that uh, breaks down the let's 
part of it. That's that's really neat. And uh, we're going to get into a whole bunch of things with you and uh, technical, tactical, as well as some more philosophy and get back to some of that inclusion part that you speak about so well as well. But uh, I wanted to start a little bit with, again, I think I watched you guys more than almost any team this year. And uh, a part of that was your conference was so fun to watch. And part of that was you guys played differently than you have in the past a little bit. And let's start with that. Some of the changes you posted up guards quite a bit more. I'm imagining, I don't know the percentages, but that's from the outside looking in. Can you talk about that? No, you're spot on. You study the game, you know it. Um, One of the things that I was very fortunate in my journey to have done, to think sometimes gets a negative connotation is I worked for a lot of different people. Um, And it wasn't like I was chasing jobs or always looking to get to a new situation. It's just the way the path, my path has been a little bit unconventional. So I'll go back and walk you through this and I'll get back to your question, how that how that kind of manifests itself and how we played this year. So I started, I played for two really good coaches in college. I played for really good coaches in high school. And that was the foundation of my basketball thought process. But through college, I learned that I maybe wanted to coach. And I started to listen to the, the signs that our coaches would give and scout reports of things that were important to winning at the college level. And I think if you asked any of my coaches, they would always say I was a student of the game, that they maybe could have seen me ultimately becoming a coach. I never saw that for myself, really. But if you talk to them, they probably would say that. I was always a leader. Uh, Playing a point guard position was important to me. And then as I transitioned into coaching, the first guy I worked for was a guy named Larry Davis as a graduate assistant at Furman University in 2004. And Larry was old school disciplinary, had worked for Clem Haskins and Dave Odom himself. Uh, and so I kind of learned just the grind. He was a, he's like the ultimate grinder in, in this profession. I uh, went to Cincinnati with his really good friend, Mick Cronin, and helped him really get that thing off the ground again after Huggins had left. Um, and then after a year as a GA, I went to work for a guy who was very, very different than, than Larry Davis, a guy named Buzz Peterson. Uh, Buzz, uh, ironically, played for uh, coach Fogler as well, when Coach Fogler was an assistant coach at North Carolina. Um, and so I worked for him for two years after he got let go of Tennessee. And so Buzz was in a different frame of mind when he got to Coastal Carolina. He had been to the high major level. He had had a really, really successful journey. He was kind of one of those guys who skyrocketed through the profession early on. And when he got to Coastal, you could tell he had a different uh, understanding of what recruiting, how recruiting mattered, right? You get burned at that level and it really stands out to you that really players is what makes a difference. Uh, So for two years, I worked for him and learned a Carolina break again after having played for Coach Fogler. And then I transitioned to working for Mike Young at Wofford, who was very different. Uh, Motion offense, um, you know, not pressure defense at all, kind of pack line. Uh, And then after a year there, I went to work for Darren Horn, who had left Western Kentucky and went to take the job at South Carolina after a Sweet 16 appearance. So again, a very different coach, personality-wise, philosophically, recruiting everything. Um, Then I worked for Frank Martin for a year. Again, another very contrasting person. Um, And then I worked for for Brad Underwood, who's kind of a a, a branch of Frank Stree and, 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 uh, and that whole Bob Huggins deal. And I only say that to say, all those guys were pretty successful coaches. They just all did it a little bit differently. 
And so I think the advantage that I started to talk about from the beginning of this question was I'm not married to one style. I have uh, an awareness that you can have success and it looks different how you get there. Uh, and so when, when I recruited Cade, I knew we had something very unique from a skill and talent standpoint, but I had to figure out how to mesh his talent and skill. He was going to be on the court 35 minutes a game uh, with some guys who had already played and maybe were still trying to figure themselves out with a guy like Isaac Likely, who had played a lot for two years and handled the ball a lot as a primary playmaker for us. And so I spent a lot of last offseason just studying different uh, types of offense. And one of the things that I talked to Cade about in his recruitment was putting him in positions that he could put his full dis, uh, skills, uh, the whole repertoire of his skill set on display for the NBA scouts while still having success. And that's where the idea of, well, if he's going to play point guard for me and Isaac is going to be his backcourt mate, which is what I had in mind, then you got a 6'4 guy who has been a two-year starter at point guard, and then you got a 6'7, 6'8 guy who's really a really good playmaker himself. Most nights, the other team's not going to have two six four plus backcourt guys. Not at this level. I mean, they'll see that at the next level, but not here. And so how do we most advantage ourselves to use those skills and that size to our, to, to our benefit? Uh, and you couch that with the fact that we didn't have a great interior, naturally interior post presence, other than Caleb Boone, who was coming off a good freshman year, but you couldn't necessarily feel like you could count on him to carry you in there. Uh, and that's how we got to the offense being more open and, you know, kind of high low where teams have to figure out if they're going to double team Cade or play on one on one. And we felt like we had enough floor spaces. It didn't pan out that way from a number standpoint. We didn't shoot the ball as well as I'd hope we would. But that gave us an opportunity to at least take advantage of case size and Isaac's physicality on the post as much as even our post players posting up. So we talk about us posting more. It was more guard post ups than it was true post players post ups this past season. Yeah, it's great. And I love that progression of understanding that you just shared with us. I imagine uh, that this concept of not being married to one style is, is a reflection of the modern game a little bit more but also a reflection of just more players are more skilled. Is, is that not part of it as well, that players are just capable of playing multiple positions? So we can't plug and play. We have to adapt to them. There's no question. Uh, in fact, uh, players are starting to understand the value of being multifaceted and having um, creating more value for themselves by being able to do different things in different spaces of the floor. So, so I'm an old school basketball junkie. I've always been married to the game itself. And I watched basketball all my youth. I watched a lot of NBA. I watched a lot of college. So I watched the NBA when it was true. You had two post players in there. Charles Oakley and Patrick Ewan were on each block doing different jobs, right, as a Knicks fan. And, you know, very rarely did you ever see Patrick Ewan step out and touch the ball on the three-point line. I mean, just... I don't remember it happening. I, I don't just, either. <laughs> <laughs> like I watched it all my life. Don't remember it ever happened. Um, and Charles Oakley maybe was a reversal guy, as a, but he never put the ball on the floor to make a play. And that those guys played most of the game for the Knicks. And then you saw Anthony Mason and Xavier McDaniel kind of 
become a little bit more skilled. Derek Coleman, those guys came along. You saw bigger guys with more skill. Uh, and so, absolutely, I've watched the evolution of the game uh, to the point where I think it was two years ago, uh, somehow it got lost on me that I think it's Brooke Lopez who plays for the Bucks yep. became a primary three-point shooter. Like, it blew my mind. So I go to the Thunder Bucks game because I'm here in Stillwater and it's easy to get down there, mostly to see Giannis. And I watched Brooke Lopez go like four for four from three in the first half. And I was looking around like, when did that happen? And then I decided, just because I'm always curious, I looked up his stats. Like, that's what he does. <laughs> like, he's a three-point shooter now. <laughs> and so it got me curious about when did, when, did it, when did it actually happen? I looked at his stats. Like, his first three or four years in the league, he not only didn't make threes, he didn't shoot any of them. <laughs> and it just shows you, you got to be open-minded and give kids a chance to show you some of the things that they could develop into. And I think that that's what we've tried to do in our program as well. Well, and it, it might speak also to the fact that he maybe always had that skill, but he never had the freedom. And now that's what we're seeing in the NBA gone down. It's just the freedom that players are allowed to play with. That's just, just remarkable unleashing of skill, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, you look at guys who just, I mean, Kevin Durant's obviously like it's, 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 it's str- like it's bizarre to think a guy that big, like he's a guard. I mean, there's, there's no question about it, you know, and, and then you got true post players who traditionally would just be on the block banging against people. And now the understanding of the value of shots, right. Uh, has changed the way we approach this thing. And I think it's pretty good because it's almost forced guys to learn how to play as opposed to just being athletes. And um, I, I think you're starting to see more and more where athleticism is, is has less value the higher you go up in the game. And I think that's a good thing. It's a good thing. And the other part that you alluded to there, which players are smarter because of the analytics. And I think that's a big part of that is the analytics have gone down to players and they just know just enough to understand the value of different shots and different things. And is that a part of your program then educating them about what the analytics mean and how it helps them? Absolutely. And and we, we talk about the progression of offense and at what point in the shot clock is a shot actually a good shot, right? whether it's in transition or in the middle part of shot clock or late shot clock could very easily tell you whether that shot is better for you at that moment, even right in transition. Uh, a three is really, really good because you're in rhythm. The defense is off balance out of whack on offensive rebounds. Same thing, late shot clock in the middle of the clock. If you've got seven dribbles, you're being pretty inefficient and we're not getting the ball movement and breaking down the defense to put yourself in position to get the highest value of shot that you can get, whether or not you can make it at a high percentage, if you get that shot enough over a period of time, if you've worked on it, uh, you'll have a better chance to score. Hey coach, I really appreciate you listening to the basketball podcast, and I hope you will consider supporting it and your coaching even more as the countdown is over. It's here. It's live. It's been years in the making. We have launched our newly redesigned website at basketballimmersion.com. Basketball Immersion is an effective player development tool because we focus on coach development. Since we know the greatest player development is coach development, we support and stimulate change in you as a coach. Now is the time to immerse yourself in learning. In our community, we'll show you how to get specific outcomes using comprehensive video and course-based learning, 
as well as community interaction and expert sharing in our masterclasses, you will get specific outcomes to stimulate, add to, make over, or improve your coaching. Join our community today at basketballmersion.com and learn what is possible. Hey coach, have you gotten on Locker Room app yet? Live audio only sports talk platform, free to download and to use. Talk to me, other fans, athletes, and insiders in real time. Perfect for watch parties, debates, post-game breakdowns, and reacting to breaking news. Share your own experiences on the app. All you need to do is download the Locker Room app free in the iOS app store. Create a profile, link your Twitter, and join me at 9 p.m. Eastern on Tuesday nights to ask questions, share ideas, and to have basketball coaching conversations on Locker Room app. Follow me at B-Ball Immersion, live on Locker Room, on Tuesdays at 9 p.m. Eastern. It's great stuff, and it brings us to another question. We talked about posting up your guards, but also matchup-based, right? Because you essentially played with two point guards, you know, unique point guards, and, and obviously had a lot of talent around them. But those two players, were you constantly trying to hunt matchups on the perimeter as well with them? Always. And we actually got more matchup conscious as we went through the year, probably because we had a fairly young team. And it took them a while to understand the why, because mm. when I played, there wasn't a why, right? You just did what your coach told you to do. <laughs> and he figured out later if it worked or not. Well, now they're very curious, which is good, like because guys want to understand. And, and we actually got even better as we went later into the year, particularly in conference play, where we played Ice and Cade and a guy like Avery Anderson. And even sometimes a guy like Bryce Williams, who's a combo, or Rondell Walker, who's he's a guard. He's not more of a point, but where you can really space the floor and create, create a matchup that can that can then create offense for you. Uh, almost to the point where they they realize that later in the year, okay, now I get it. Coach wants me to come set this ball screen because he knows they're going to switch. And now we don't need to run this intricate offense. Now we just have to be able to break down off the dribble. We play really good defensive teams in the likes of West Virginia and Baylor and Kansas, but still found a way in the games that we won against those teams to find matchups that can exploit uh, the, the, the guys who were making the plays for us. Well, that why also connects to coaching a player like Kate Cunningham, where you, and I'm curious how you develop that within your team, both the why and then their understanding of playing, because everyone's talented but he's just better. And Absolutely. we have to acknowledge that. And then your players have to accept that that's going to actually help them. So can you talk about that why process of how you explain that to your players? Yeah, that, that was actually more challenging than I thought it would be. Not from a sense of Cade, because he actually is the one who helped smooth the process over. Um, it was more challenging because I wasn't sure how the parts would work together in, 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 uh, in practice, like I'm a logical, practical person. So it still has to, like not having anybody inside still sometimes gives me some angst because I always, I'm always conscious of rebounding. Uh, but Isaac likely proved that he was a, a pretty good enough rebounder. Avery Anderson has some games where he would rebound. Uh, so getting comfortable with the rebounding piece and not having to feel like you were going to get it overexposed defensively uh, when you get settled there, but but Cade's ability to welcome. So, so I'll, I'll go back and give you an example as I answer this question. When we first start workouts, I've already got this in my mind that he needs to post up a lot for me. 
I'm not quite sure how well Isaac likely is going to accept being a 50-50 post-up perimeter guy, mm. right? And to, to even a, probably a lesser degree, a guy like Matthew Alexander Moncrief, who I think is going to be a terrific player. He's a hybrid forward, but there's still a stigma about being a post-up guy. So what I did was the first day of workouts, I sent Cade down with Caleb Boone and Bernard Kuma. <laughs> and then I, after a couple of minutes, I said, hey, why don't you guys go get some reps down there too? Well, instinctively, their mind looks down and they see our post players, but they also see Cade. And, and it kind of gives them, well, I'm not sure how much I can really fight this if he's not going to fight it. <laughs> so his embracing of that multifaceted skill and understanding, creating that value uh, really, really helped us. But but being able to post him up because he was a good passer uh, is really what made ultimately the biggest difference for us. That's a great example. I mean, thank you for sharing that. I mean, it really speaks to the art of positive manipulation that Absolutely. we can do as coaches, doesn't it? And get- it wasn't like I didn't want to coerce them as much as I needed them to understand the value. Mm-hmm. And he was better at getting them to understand the value than I would have been by just telling them. Because it, coming from me it would have been like, you're not good enough to do this part. <laughs> That's how it would have been received if I said, why don't you guys go post up? It would have been like, well, why can't I handle it? Well, because the guy who's going to handle it all the time is also going to post up. <laughs> and, and imagining then with the analytics, once you got into the season, you could demonstrate or show that, look, when Cade posts up and he catches the ball, this percentage of time, other people actually shoot, right? Absolutely. And there's those different things when he's on the perimeter and he drives, this percentage of time, other people actually shoot. Yeah, and there was an evolution for our team about seven or eight games in where we, we actually had to take Kate off the ball primarily as much because we got to watching him create offense too much. And it's, it's a, I think it's a pretty natural thing. Everyone knows he's that good and can make the plays, but again, it also makes it easy on the defense. So we actually moved Bryce Williams and Isaac Likely into – being our primary attackers, specifically in transition. So in the main basket, K would inbound the ball and be our trail guy, right? A lot of times we wanted to open the floor, even if teams wanted to kind of um, maybe soft catch with the ball handler from maybe crossing the floor or whatever, they weren't going to do that with Cade because they didn't want to play in closeouts against him. And then if they did, now he's the reversal guy and he's just as good as a secondary attacker as he is a first. And it just gave those other guys some more opportunities in a free-flowing transition setting to be playmakers within the half court. We knew we were going to run more stuff through him. That's cool. And speak to maybe then your philosophy of, of empowering your weak side or empowering your players off the ball. Because again, again, coaches kind of think, oh, it's just easy to get them to do this or this. But that is one of the hardest things to be able to get your players to understand, isn't it? I think it's the hardest, particularly when you talk about the guys with this level of talent who see themselves needing to do whatever it is to get to the next level. And in their minds, especially younger guys, I've got to have the ball to show that I can make the play or create the offense. And sometimes understanding how to space the floor is just as valuable, understanding when and why and how to cut or screen or slip is also equally important. So just drilling that stuff. Uh, I vividly remember a game where we're, we're playing our first game against Oklahoma on the road this year. And Kate had it going pretty good. 
but you could tell he was he was um he was laboring because he was making a lot of those plays one on one. And you know, up to a point where I had one of my sisters say, Hey, do we need to get him a blow? And I'm like, No, not this game. <laughs> <laughs> We're just gonna figure out a way to kind of and leave some pressure. So we started to run our pistol action with Bryce Williams, who was a very capable shooter. And it was one thing to put your best defender on Cade, but it creates a little bit of uh uncertainty when you're also a switching team. I talked about this even last spring. I said if Let's just say Kansas, for example, Marcus Garrett, elite defender. The game's tied in the last possession of the game, and they like to switch one through four. If I send another guard to screen Marcus Garrett, is he going to give up the matchup? I don't know. I think part of his pride is going to kick in and not want to, which may cause enough confusion to give Cade a, a look at a good shot or get another guy wide open because both guys go with him. And we did that a few times with Bryce Williams. We, we sent him on those side step-ups, and he would slip out early. He made two huge threes, and then they started to switch because they didn't want to lose him. So now Kay's got the second-best defender who isn't good enough because the first guy's – he's trying his hardest, and he's still scoring anyway. It, it speaks to the fun of that, which is like defensively trying to say, okay, let's not cover with our best player. Let's switch or have our best player empowered off the ball defensively. But also – and I'm curious about your thoughts on this. Teams are giving up switches sometimes for no reason. Oh, it drives me crazy. Yeah, yeah. Um, because, I, again, still kind of my old school. I've always raised, like, switching is the easy way out, you know, kind of mentality. And I still have a little bit of that in me, partly because I was only good as a defensive player and I took pride in it and didn't want to switch matchups, especially if I was guarding the other team's best player. But it, But it's... I get on one hand how it keeps your defense safe. It kind of keeps your weak side defense pretty set, but it also sometimes creates matchups that you just don't want. And it puts you in a position where you're late in the game, you got some uncertainty. You know, Avery Anderson had it going against West Virginia on the road. We're playing without Cade and without Ice in that game on the road. Deuce McBride has given him problems. So we started setting ball screens with another guard and they would switch it. And inevitably, once we got the matchup, we spaced the floor. And again, we, we would find the, the weakest guy of those four perimeter guys who are going to switch. And now, now he's got to show if he can guard one-on-one. Well, having been a switching coach defensively, I mean, we spent tons of time in my last few years on understanding when not to switch, like instead of making it that automatic and, I think Absolutely. that's what we're going to see with the evolution of switching is teams getting a lot better at that decision-making point to say, yeah. well, they're not engaging in the ball screen. So there's no reason to actually switch it. They're not trying to score. <laughs> that's the next step for me. And that's what I'm going to really spend a lot of time focusing on this summer is the art of not switching, even when you're in a switch coverage, because again, a lot of times it puts you at an event, a disadvantage unnecessarily. And it comes back to what you said, which you're not married to a style which is like, what is the best thing for us and how do we figure out to make it even better? And that would be a great example of that. The other thing that you talked about as you went through that is kind of like understanding playing off the ball. And I still want to get some of your thoughts on what are the best things to do off the ball. But it struck me as like so many players watch the best NBA players, yeah. but really they should spend more time engaged in watching the role players. 
right? And that's hard to get all this time watching the role players. <laughs> How I do tell we my guys them? all the time, stop yeah. watching LeBron. Like, don't watch that guy. That's not a comparable. <laughs> watch PJ Tucker and watch uh, Patrick Beverly and, and watch uh, who's on the buff. Not, not, I don't even know Chris Middleton. He's so elite. I mean, I think even that, like these guys have no feel for how good these guys really are. Even the guys that they think they're better than. Totally. <laughs> totally. And it's that decision, especially if we're talking off that ball, the decision to hold a spot or to cut versus action that I just think is remarkably at a high level in the NBA right now. Yeah, I, I think, you know, and I study this thing and I've, I've, I've watched it for, I've really, really studied the Warriors for the last probably seven or eight years. They know how to get Steph shots. All other four, the other four guys on the court, because that, we, we talk about putting a team in a blender, mm-hmm. right? And putting them in rotation. Everybody has a different term for it. But some, what we guys don't understand is after the blender started, we don't need someone else to stop and restart the blender. Because <laughs> Cade was the blender starter for us. When he created the rotation, we didn't need someone else to try to do his, shoot it, pass it to stay ahead of the defense, or be ready to rip drive and draw the next guy. And most of the time, that's for another kick anyway. Um, but Draymond, my point was Draymond's so good. He splashes to the ball and almost leads Steph into a shot. And Steph does as good a job as anybody I've ever seen with moving after he's immediately passed the ball. Because most guys, guy working his butt off trying to stop Steph from getting a good shot, when he gives the ball up, they feel at least for a half second, whew, you know, that relief. All right, he didn't score this time. <laughs> well, that's when he's at his most dangerous because he's an elite change of speed cutter. And those guys do a great job of finding him in those corners after he's given up the ball. That's such a great example, coach. It's that, that respacing action or that they just find him again somewhere else with a quick, you know, reversal handoff or a quick kind of screen back. These type of actions that are just so hard to cover because it's, it's the inherent nature of a defender to relax for a second, isn't it? When they're Absolutely. off the ball. Absolutely. And, and, you know, especially when you're guarding a guy like that, your mindset isn't necessarily to defending on cuts because Steph handles it a lot. It's to stop him when he has it from getting a quality shot as much as you can, as good as he is. And then when he gives it up, you feel like there's at least a half a second or a moment in time where, all right, you can catch your breath. But again, kind of like Reggie Miller, when he used to run around all the time, those guys were more dangerous without the ball, even. I think the thing that makes him unique, and I, and I experienced this coaching against Trey Young, they're, and it, a lot of guys are coming this way, the depth at which they can shoot the ball efficiently. Like when you have to guard a guy at the 35 foot mark because he can make the shot consistently, it's almost impossible. This has influenced me in what I teach and I'm curious to get your thoughts and I've never asked anyone this, but uh, thinking about shooting and going, you know, when you and I grew up, we used to spend a lot of time coming off of down screens and on air and just working on our turning footwork. But the reality is most threes nowadays are happening on catch and shoot on the spawn. So I'm curious, like, has that influenced how little you now teach coming off a stagger and getting your feet square? Is that just a specialty for certain players now? 
Yeah, and I, I'll say this. It, like, even – I've been a head coach only four years. So so a lot of my career has been as an assistant. Mm-hmm. And, and I just did what our head coach – my job was to help us execute his vision. And even so, when you first become a head coach, you just kind of do the things you know until you can evolve. In my first year, I still remember our first probably month or maybe the first three or four months that we were getting prepared for the season. I've got guys running off pin downs and staggers. And then I look up halfway through the season, you know, as you study and film, get like, we don't ever shoot those shots in games. <laughs> but those are the shots that we're practicing. And I'm like, we, we're doing this thing backwards. Mm-hmm. We got to figure out how we're going to play and where guys are going to get shots from and then build practice based on that. Well, and it speaks to the importance of learning how to like space and get ready to shoot. Right. Absolutely. And, and that type of thing that happens. And you're absolutely right. Like you see it sometimes, obviously from trainers or different things, working on these pin downs and stuff and just going, that just doesn't happen very often. And if it does happen, it's very much a specialty. Like are there 15 players in the NBA that come off of staggers now and shoot? Sure. I mean, and, and that kind of speaks to just the evolution of offense and the value of shots. A lot of times, if you're coming off a stagger, guys are going to shoot a long mid-range jump shot. And there's just not enough value there to force your offense to create those type of shots. Yeah, and that, you're not that's why we see, yeah, but, sorry. And that's why we see more of the staggers or stagger handoffs along the three-point line. Absolutely. So they can stop behind it. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating. The other question I kind of want to get your thoughts on are, is the value of ball reversal. That used to be the thing, right? And now I just don't see it as being as valuable because it's based on what you've already talked about, blender or advantage basketball, right? Yeah, um, much more emphasis on skip passes, one mores. The ball reversal, I think more times comes off the dribble and drive kickouts or a post up when you have a chance to draw a second defender. But I agree. Just um, I think the numbers would bear it out. I haven't studied it. I would guess 10 years ago there was a higher percentage increase when you had more ball reversals. And I just would imagine that's not as drastic anymore. Hey coach, have you checked out immersionvideos.com? Immersionvideos.com has exclusive products from Doug Novak, Aaron Fern, Dave Smart, and now successful high school coach, Mark Cassio. The all access high school basketball practice with Mark Cassio is now available. Embrace the modern basketball movement by applying a decisive, fast, and free philosophy. Experience Coach Cassio's game-based practices, up-tempo attack, innovative offensive and defensive concepts, and impactful skill development. Access one of the best high school basketball educators in the world. Open the doors and get full access to three practices and a drill video library. Go to marccassiobasketball.com to learn more. Hey coach, as I mentioned, if you download and start using Locker Room app, you can talk to me, other fans, athletes, and insiders in real time. It is a great place to listen and to share your own experiences on the app. I've enjoyed the ongoing conversations, watching games together, reacting to the biggest news, rumors, and games for sure. But mostly, I've enjoyed talking with coaches like yourself in real time. Join in on conversations with me and others. I'll be hosting rooms every week on Tuesday at 9 p.m. Eastern. Come through and talk with me live.
Coach, not sure if you know this stat, Simon Gersberg from Shot Quality, uh, who's been on the podcast, shared it with me when I was preparing for this, but said that a majority of your offense last season was predicated on attacking the rim. You guys were 12th overall in the country in frequency of drives towards the basket and did this 9% more frequently than the average Big 12 team. I'm curious if, if this was a part of your philosophy and your emphasis for the season. Um, kind of goes back to that evolution. Um, it wasn't intended to be that way. Um, you know, we thought we had built a team with K's driving ability and we thought he shot the ball better than many people did. And I think that's one thing that bared itself to be true. Uh, but we thought we were going to be able to shoot the ball from three more consistently. And it just didn't pan out. So as opposed to, again, staying married to that thought process coming in, we tried to figure out what would serve us best in trying to win. And that's how that evolution happened. We started to put Cade and Ice and Bryce and Avery in more situations where they could drive the ball and create scoring opportunities versus matchups. And then we use that to create post-up opportunities for guys like Caleb Bull. So that, that's, that was more of an evolution than a. And that's cool to hear. And uh, that also speaks to us as coaches being adaptable. But I'm curious more the point, how did you communicate that change to your team? I'm pretty honest with him. You know, we get about 10 games in and you got five guys shooting under 30% from three <laughs> and the numbers kind of tell the story for you. You know, um, our job first and foremost is to put ourselves in the best position to have success. And, you know, it was no doubt that teams were going to just, you know, just dare us to make shots from out there. And we had to create some ball movement and create some transition. I think one of the things that you, know, you didn't mention was our, our tempo was, we play much faster than everybody in the Big 12 also. I mean, by like 10 possessions, I think, uh, to the nearest team. And so that was another way we thought we would try to create more offense as opposed to, you know, just having to sit in the half court and, and miss a bunch of threes all game long. Well, I was going to reference that a little bit with the fact that with the driving and with the faster pace, you guys were also more turnover prone than you had been in the past, right? Yes, yes. And that was it, it was one of those dichotomies if you will of of thought like we know we have to play fast but it's also going to lead to probably especially with younger guys right i had caves a freshman rondell's a freshman avery a sophomore who didn't play a ton as a freshman bryce williams who even though he was a senior was a first year guy for us so learning our style of play and those are going to be our primary playmaking guards and so i knew it would lead itself to you know, being a little bit higher turnover than I would want. But I thought we found a nice balance in there as we went towards the end of the season with being a little bit more conscious of valuing the ball and still being aggressive in transition of, of trying to play fast. And uh, did you unlock any, I don't want to say secrets, but anything that you thought was most effective that say coaches that are listening should look at in terms of creating these double gaps and these driving lanes? Because obviously that was part of what you guys did a great job of. Well, I think one thing, you know, our spread ball screen stuff ended up being a very, very strong tool for us. And then using Cade in different parts of our offense also helped. So for instance, again, just think about a player's mentality. If, if I was guarding Cade and I knew coach said, hey, you got him, my mindset is I got to stop him from scoring. So if I'm the low weak side defender on a pick and roll, how aggressively am I going to tag the roller? 
<laughs> if I've if I'm guarding Cade in that corner. And a lot of times teams wouldn't help as much. Or even in our lift actions, our roll and replace type actions, that guy's supposed to hold a little bit longer, was probably leaving the roll man a little too quick, which was creating more opportunities for us to hit the roller. And then there was times we made him the screener, which again created that thought process of the guy guarding, guarding him. He's supposed to switch the screen, but he's guarding the best player in the country. And a lot of times that gave Avery Anderson an opportunity to get downhill and create some offense. So moving him around was probably the biggest factor in it, but also kind of allowing different guys to initiate the offense and allow him to play off the ball a little bit more, create a little bit more indecision for our help side. Well, I don't want coaches to miss what you said, because I think that's such an important part. And I think elite coaches think that way is that you think from a player's perspective. Like if you really step back and you think from a player's perspective, you become a better coach, don't you? I, I think so. I think that's helped me. Again, there are a lot of coaches who, are, again, explain, do this a lot of different ways yeah. and have success. Uh, but I think what served me well, and, and it allows me to, to I think, allow gets our guys to, to be all in. They know we got their back. They know we're looking out for what they see. I pull our guys to this bench all the time, and I ask them, what do you see? We've run this action four or five times. How are they defending it? And even on the defensive end, we're not talking much about defense, but defensively, I'll ask them, what, what's our best coverage here in this situation? They're going to set this ball screen with Dave McCormick. Should we hard show? Should we go under? You know, and, and I try to empower them because one thing I, I, I've always believed, the game is about confidence. The most confident players make the most confident plays and usually have the most success. And Steph Curry is a great example. He believes he's going to make every shot. And if he misses eight in a row, he's going to take the next eight the exact same way. Um, and so I want our players to play the game and not worry about what's going on on the sideline. And so you, they'll tell you, coach will wave me off if I'm looking over there for a play call a lot because I'm like, there's four guys out there that can help you, and I can't that much. When I call a timeout, that's my time to talk to you. But during the game, you got to communicate with the guys on the floor. Well, you don't have to share specific examples, but I'm curious if that philosophy has evolved from being around a lot of, say, older school coaches, where a lot of it was more like demonstrative on the sidelines, more orchestrating it, rather than, again, in more modern basketball, where you're letting them play a little bit more. Within structure, you're still coaching them, but you know what I'm saying by that. Oh, absolutely. There's no question. Uh, I think sometimes that gets misconstrued as you're not tough on your guys. And really, it's it's more of empowering them mm-hmm. to play with the confidence necessary to have success. This is a highly competitive situation. If guys have doubt, it's really hard to have success in this game uh, to a point where, like, when guys are in free throw shooting slumps, we don't make these, like, big deals out of them. First, are they mechanically clean like is there something really technically wrong or is a guy shooting the ball differently every time so we talk about getting a routine and shooting the ball the same way that's about as far as we go with free throws because it becomes psychological if you know the the guy gets fouled and the coaches are are rolling their eyes on the sideline like the kid's gonna walk to the to the free throw line feeling like man my coach doesn't even think I'm gonna make it so uh, I do think that some of it came from like having coaches who were so hard that I saw how it affected some of my teammates. I was a little more thick skinned. It didn't affect me as much, but I've seen coaches truly affect how guys 
believed in their ability. I coached a kid, maybe one of the best shooters I've ever coached, that told me directly that a coach, you know, basically took his confidence. And so my reaction, because I was supportive of the coach, was a coach can't take your confidence. Now, I know it can happen because I've seen it happen. But my point was, you just got to keep working. Like, your confidence comes from your work. You have to believe, undoubtedly, if you work hard enough, eventually your shots will start falling if you're shooting them the same way all the time. And so I've always leaned towards uplifting guys and building confidence in them and making them feel like I got total belief in them to go out and do the things necessary. Otherwise, I shouldn't play them. To your free throw example, uh, I just wanted to share something. And I've studied Eastern philosophy quite a bit. And it's a big difference in that is that Eastern philosophy would suggest that you relax into it. Whereas Western philosophy is more, we got to work harder to get out of it. And it's such a great example that you just gave about that, that approach of a coach to coaching a modern player is, hey, like relax into it. We all miss. This is normal. And if you relax, you're more likely to get out of the free throw slump. Hey, I've heard so many different ways to approach this. And again, the guys I respect that have had success, you know, John Beeline notoriously doesn't love for his players to shoot with their off hands, no mm-hmm. matter what side of Florida on, shoot the layup with the hand you're going to make it with the most. Fine. Like it makes sense. Uh, but I've also seen coaches have guys shoot with one hand, have guys change the hand, the dominant hand that they shoot with to reconstruct the whole process. And I think, man, like, we don't have that much time with these kids. <laughs> no. no, you don't. And I've heard the uh, dominant hand thing in terms of finishing around the rim. And a lot yeah. of NBA coaches support that with analytics. Just saying the closer you get to the rim, if you shoot with your dominant hand, your percentages are higher. So to a certain extent, it makes sense. But there's a fine line, isn't there, between that and limiting your player's solutions at the basket. Absolutely. And and probably the best example is, right, I got a couple smaller guards. not small, but smaller. And they, they want to come into practice, you know, on their own time and shoot left-handed floaters and high arcing kind of, you know, half hooks and more forward. But you know why they're doing it is because they see Kyrie Irving doing it. And so it kind of goes back to don't watch Kyrie. Like <laughs> that, that is a great point. Cause he, he has a gift that he's worked yes. on and he's shaped through repetition after repetition that you haven't done yet. Right. And, and that's the point that I tell the guys. I said, listen, if you're going to put the time in, but you're going to come in here and shoot 10 of these and think that you should go shoot 50% in the game on them. Like you're not. He's shooting a thousand of these daily. And that's all he does. Like he does this every single day at nauseam. You know, there was the, the, t- Turnaround fadeaway baseline jump shot that Michael Jordan and Kobe Bryant shot effortlessly. Like the guys just saw the game winner. That's all they saw. They didn't see the 500 they missed frustratingly throughout the summer that they stayed in the gym, continue to build confidence in making it. Well, another part I imagine about that is just the experimentation that it took for him to get that good doing that is that he was okay failing and he was okay trying stuff and just saying, if I release it like this, what happens? If I put it here, what happens? And a lot of kids don't have the patience to go through those creative reps rather than orchestrated reps from a trainer or a coach, right? There's no question. The best kid that I've coached in that space is a guy named Devin Downey, uh, coached at South Carolina from 2008 to 2012. 
he was a, we had him for two years and he had that discipline of practice and he would come in for an hour and literally shoot all floaters. And it, it was no wonder he was such a great finisher and had confidence and put him on our back and have him go one-on-one against DeMarcus Cousins because they want to switch ball screens. And he had no chance because he would get into his body and he could get it on the rim. And DeMarcus didn't really want to guard anyway, but that exposed that. The kid had worked on it so much that, you know, he, he carried us to win over. I think Kentucky was ranked number one in the country that year. We beat them and it was their first loss of the season, but it was literally Devin Downey willed us to that win off that confidence of making those shots that he practiced every single day at nauseam even more so than he did catch and shoot threes or ball screen passes or anything like that, that you would normally think of for a small guard. Mm, that's a cool example. And uh, l- at least you think this is just offense coach. I, I did have some defensive stuff. And uh, okay. one of them was from an assistant in your conference. As I was preparing for this, that told me that what he thought you guys did an outstanding job of this year was keeping your opponent off balance, you know, with your defensive and you started changing defenses, playing some zone and matchup and two, two, one and stuff. Can you talk about that again? It's coming back to what you said originally, where you're not married to one style, but what was the key for you to go into this more uh, changing defense? Again, at my core, the way I learned to play the game and really coach the guys that I worked for early on, straight man to man, switch in emergency only, you know, three quarter to post, you don't double in there, you know, just, just simple things. Uh, deny, extend the passing name. Then I worked for a guy who put some of that stuff on steroids. Like the way we played at Stephen F. Austin when I worked for Brad Underwood was something I don't know if you I could ever replicate. Um, but as I've kind of become more into my own philosophy, I feel like our team is built and designed to best have success playing multiple defenses and keeping teams off balance. And there was kind of a um, an eye-opening moment for our team this year. Kind of again goes to my open-mindedness and adaptability which I think is one of my great strengths as a coach. We're four, three games into the season and we go to Marquette, who was really talented this year, had great size. We didn't. And, and I was convinced that we had to play them straight man to man and just force them to make plays one-on-one, not allow them to pass the ball as much because I thought they had skilled guys. And lo and behold, we were down like 10 to two, a minute and a half into the game. And it didn't look like we would ever get a stop. I mean, we're six possessions and we cannot, we're not coming close. <laughs> and uh, one of my assistants says, hey, why don't you just try the zone? We hadn't played zone yet that se- like in the season. We're on our first kind of real, real game. I mean, no disrespect to the teams we played before then. We played at UT Arlington. We played Texas Southern. Good teams, but this is a Big East team on the road with a bunch of young guys. And we played 37 minutes of zone and basically won the game by like eight or nine points. And I think our kids even were looking around like, why the hell haven't we been doing this more? Because <laughs> we started to play with a little bit more juice and guys were more connected. And we were getting deflections and we were rebounding better because we were in better position. Uh, and, and it really helped me figure that this is a team that can do this. It gave me confidence that we could use that in a more consistent manner, still sprinkling in our man-to-man, but, but that zone was going to be a really, really big tool for us. And I think the other connection uh, was that it created um, shorter closeouts for you guys as well to be able to defend the three-point line. And that's, that's another part of this nowadays is obviously trying to defend the three-point line. There's no question. And, and it's interesting because 
most people think that a zone gives up more threes. That's a natural thought process. That's maybe people why people think, you know, Beheim plays it a lot. Well, they give up, but teams don't make a lot of them because they're long and they get to you and all that stuff. And we had a team built like that, not quite as long. But the other thing about playing man-to-man, as aggressive as you need to be, is an incredible need for multiple efforts in every possession. And Baylor did as good a job as any team I've ever seen at doing that part in their man-to-man. And, and Scott Drew's evolved from being a primarily zone team to having really athletic guards who can cover space. Davion Mitchell, there's clips of him covering literally two corners of the half court in one possession. Uh, but when you don't, especially with younger guys who aren't totally bought in to that type of effort on the defensive end, it kind of gave them an out, but it also put us in the best position to keep guys in front and be able to contest. Uh, and again, if you go look, go back and look, we did a much better job defending the three as we played more zone. When we played, we played back-to-back games against Oakland and Oral Roberts early in the season, and both of them hit like 17 threes against us. And we're playing man. I mean, we're guarding man-to-man. <laughs> but they could shoot it deep, had smaller guards, and we just didn't. We didn't have the effort necessary. Our zone really protected us there. Well, it speaks again to the adaptability of, of a coach and trying to figure out what's actually worked. And we think we go into the season with all the answers, but inevitably we don't and we have to adjust. And uh, I, I'm so glad you're sharing these examples. No, there's no question. I think that's one of the hardest things for a coach is to accept that his initial thought was way off. <laughs> like, Because we want to feel so confident in our ability and I think sometimes it's not wanting to project um, on our players that we don't have the answers. And, and what, I, what I've always told our guys is, guys, we're going to learn each other as we go through the season. And you guys are going to learn some things about us, but I'm going to learn some things about you and myself as we go through the season. Because at the end of the day, the mission is the same. So if we keep our focus on the mission, which is to put our team in the best position, to have the most success then that means that what we thought on no, in November may look very dis- different in December, certainly by January or February. And by March, we were playing a totally different brand of basketball than I thought we would coming into the season. That's great. And uh, Coach, I mean, uh, this has been so fun. I have to get into this with you a little bit because I've done a few podcasts prior to this one on uh, coaching transitions, getting a job or getting fired and moving to a different job. One thing that is very well documented in your history is a little bit of the disappointment of not getting the Stephen F. Austin job. Can you speak not to not getting the job, but speak to how you handled that? Because there's tons of coaches in the world that are in the same situation where they think something's going to happen and then doesn't happen. And what are some of the best practices to be able to move forward? Yeah, so, you know, as I reflect on this, the further you go along, the more reflective and introspective you are. Uh, I'm starting to feel like I'm getting old because I have a lot of these moments now. But some of the best things that have ever happened to me in my life are moments that I didn't get the thing that I thought I wanted the most. Um, In 2012, while working out my alma mater, so I got back to South Carolina when I was like 26 years old. And I felt like I was like on this rocket ship up to the top of the college coaching uh, mountaintop. Um, I worked four years at different places and now I'm back in the SEC at my alma mater place where I knew a lot of people. There was so many comforting elements to that. 
I met a young lady who eventually became my wife. Things were riding high uh, and we get fired. And I'm not sure if that was the moment that I realized this is business because the AD went down to Darren's office and gave him the news. And I'm sitting there in my office at the time with a degree hanging on the wall. Like, like I'm a part of this place. And he surely enough came down to my office not long afterwards and said, Hey, I thank you for your effort here. I know you love this place, but we're going to move in a different direction. I need your keys by Monday. <laughs> and there's nothing like that reality to put you back in a good perspective. On a side note, my wife was pregnant at the time. <laughs> so it really helps charge your brain. Uh, but some of that, be- because that happened, Frank Martin replaces Darren Horn as the head coach of South Carolina. On his staff at K-State is a guy named Brad Underwood, who I'd never known. So I meet Brad in that transition and eventually go work with him at Stephen F. Austin, where we have wild success. Very and so again, that was a big, that was a big moment for me. Uh, because of the success we had, Brad gets the job here, and I go through that process thinking, this is the job for me. If I'm ever going to be a head coach, I'm going to get the start here. We've won like 90 games in three years. Went to the tournament every year. Our kids are doing well, and I'm a big part of it in my mind. And, okay, when I don't get that job, you could imagine the just the negative thoughts. Like, well, maybe this never happens for me. Because if it can't happen here under these circumstances, I don't know a better circumstance. But the truth is, oftentimes, that thing is the thing that gives you the opportunity for success when, it, when, it, when your chance comes. And because of that, I was when I got this Oklahoma State job, and I'm not going to... Cr- claim a great level of success, but I think we've done okay so far, but it's because I know how precious these opportunities are, how hard they're to come by, how you can do everything right and not get one. And I was determined come hella high water. Well, we're going to lose games and I may get fired because we don't win enough of them, but it's not going to be because of how I approach how we do the job. We're going to have a staff that's committed to the, the daily grind of it. We're going to have kids who understand the opportunities to be at this level. And, you know, I've just been, you know, undeterred by the things that have, and we've, we've had some challenges here in my first four years. Uh, but I think coming here, when, 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 when I didn't get the job at Stephen F. Austin, part of my thought process was, why do I have my family across the country in a place I have no idea if I'm not going to be able to get ultimately what I want? Why don't I just go back to the East Coast, be closer to family, and live in this comforting world. But quickly, I reminded myself that maybe that's not the path for you. And so I came up here with a grateful attitude, um, humility to continue to help Brad have as much success as possible. And I think because of that, the way I worked when I got to Oklahoma State showed the people here when the time came, and it was under strange circumstances, Brad left kind of unexpectedly, that the AD kind of said, you know what? I'm going to take a chance on this guy. I believe what he's about. Essentially, I had a year interviewing. And I think that's the part that people miss. Even in your most challenging situation, someone's watching you. And in that moment where I wasn't wholly into being at Oklahoma State, I never let anyone see that I was disappointed that there was a great opportunity in front of me. 
And it was the opportunity to continue to help Brad. It wasn't to become a head coach because that never crossed my mind. But the athletic director was watching how I moved and how I interacted with people in the department and how I treated the players and how I dressed and whether I showed up on time and how I spoke when I went to radio shows or to alumni meetings. And I think he took a liking to me and said, you know what? Why not? And we're going to take a chance and see if this young guy can do it. We're going to try to give him all the resources necessary. And there's no guarantees if I hire a Hall of Famer that he's going to have success either. And um, here we are four years later and have a chance to continue it on. That's great. Gratitude and humility serves us all very well, doesn't it? That's Yeah, I think there's some words that get overused. Um, Grinding is one of them. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Elite is another, right? If everything's elite, then nothing is, right? <laughs> but there are a few words that I think are, are pretty undervalued in our vocabulary. One is humility, uh, and another one is self-awareness. Mm. Uh, I think one of my greatest strengths is I try, I, I, I work hard to be authentic, but you can't be authentic if you don't know who you are. Mm. <laughs> It's hard to be authentically yourself when you're struggling with even your identity. And so if people have more self-awareness, of this is about kids and players. And yeah, we can enjoy. I have the best job in the world. Like I wake up every day, like I get to coach basketball for a living. This has got to be a joke. They pay me pretty good for it. (laughs) (laughs) And we can hear your passion and love for the game in the way you talk and the way you just communicate it with us as well. Coach, talk to me a little bit. Uh, obviously, new coach, young coach, coaching new and young players. Can you talk about that dynamic? Yeah, it's been a um, it, it was a it was a challenge from a building chemistry standpoint because these young guys mostly come in thinking they don't have the humility we talked about. They think that this is a stepping stone to them getting to the NBA. But what we showed is we can get kids to buy into the winning aspect of it and kind of put some of that. Uh, personal agenda to the side. There's always going to be an element of it. Um, But North Carolina had the first most points scored by freshmen this year. And we were second. And there were a lot of teams that were a little bit older than us with older coaches that didn't have the success that we had with a bunch of young guys, partly because the way we run our program gets guys to buy and they fully immerse in this. And again, it was led by a guy who I think is going to shake Adam Silver's hand as the number one pick in the draft here in a little while. And I couldn't be more thankful for him and his family for the the all-in commitment that they made, which made my job much easier. And and I certainly hope that that's an example to other young guys, that this is a place you can go and and you can do both, right? There was this narrative that Anthony Edwards went to Georgia, didn't have success, even though he still put up numbers, Ben Simmons, Markel Fultz, that you can't be elite go to a non-blue blood and have success both as a team and individual. And, and Kate Cunningham kind of laughed that in the face and proved that it can happen here at Oklahoma State. So I'm certainly thankful for that. Well, and we're thankful for you for sharing the game with us. Uh, definitely grateful for you taking the time. And, uh, you know, it's been really enjoyable to watch your program over the last few years and uh, grateful for the success that you had this year, no doubt. And it's going to continue with what you do. So thanks for sharing the game, Coach. Thanks a lot. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and to give the Basketball Podcast and this week's guest a shout-out on social media to show your support for us sharing the game. And to stay up to date on all things basketball immersion, 
Subscribe to our newsletter at basketballimmersion.com newsletter.